Let's talk uh, music for a moment. Now, today, when I go to my Spotify account, I essentially have access to millions of songs from around the world. I can go to YouTube as well and find my favorite act or perhaps a new artist as well. In both cases, I am a slave to the algorithm. Now, imagine a time when your access to music uh, and what was hot and hip came from a music station, from uh, heavy metal to grunge to hip-hop to R&B. In the 1980s and 90s, much music broadcast youth culture into our living rooms, connecting our large country. Think of people like Erica M., J.D. Roberts, Master T., Monica Diol. There were household names, and even to a younger generation, Rick the Temp or Hannah Simone. Our next guest knows the subject well. Sean Menard is the producer of 299 Queen Street West. It's the address of much music. He is a veteran veteran filmmaker. Sean has produced and, and edited and directed The Carter Effect, which looked at basketball star Vince Carter's influence on basketball in Canada. Sean, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jeff. I love that um, that intro, man. You really nailed it. You <laughs> consume music back in the day yeah yeah and uh, well i'm showing my age as well and uh, certainly uh, speaks to probably the impact much music had on me i grew up in the interior here in british columbia small little lumber town and uh, you know my access to the world to like many uh, in many communities whether it's a big city or a small town was was uh, much music uh, what convinced you to pursue this documentary this idea uh well obviously i grew up uh in hamilton a slightly larger city than you did, but growing up watching the channel had a big impact on my youth. And then it really just came down to a feeling that people were kind of forgetting or this part of history was, was getting overlooked and forgotten. And that's the great part about being able to make documentary films. You get to remind people and show them really, you know, when you're listening to modern music and the Drakes of the world or the Sean Mendez or Beavers weekend, they all came from, you know, the Toronto area watching much music so there seemed to me seemed to be a, a great story in a parallel there now you know in in some cases it was also tv the tv that was produced relatively cheap uh, compared to other uh, other networks why do you think it was so successful well i think it had that you know in the place of money they had to balance it out by giving them complete freedom and I think that was a beautiful thing because sometimes when you don't have money to throw out a problem, you have to solve it creatively. So you had these artists that came in the studios and they embraced their lack thereof, where it was really just a workplace and the phones are ringing and people are walking around and you had some of the biggest names in music sitting down, being interviewed by a VJ with no experience, live on television. There's fans all around watching, not only on TV, but in the environment and yeah, it, th- there was a magic there, and I think that's what really resonated with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Did you have any difficulty getting access to some of these VJs and those behind the scenes to, to tell the story? Uh, no, well, I actually brought on Erica M as my consulting producer. I, I'm from a different generation of much music, so I actually didn't, and I told her this when we met, I didn't really know who she was until I researched this project, but that was part of the genesis of why I felt it was so important to do this. Um, and then she kind of just helped open the door and, and reach out to, to a bunch of the VJs. Uh, George Strompolopoulos was the, was the final one and probably the most difficult to track down. He lives now in Los Angeles, but he eventually came on board and, and gave an amazing interview. So um, I think the VJs were uh, skeptical that this thing was actually going to be executed. Mm-hmm. Um, but once 
they see it kind of rolling out, and especially since it's playing now and easily one of the biggest festivals, if not the biggest festival in the U.S., I think it's really given them a lot of um, confidence that people really do uh, resonate with this story. You couldn't tell the story without access to some of that footage, which is still going to be owned by uh, these companies. Uh, And did you have any difficulty getting access to some of that old, uh, great footage? For six years, yeah. I've been trying to make the film for that long. And every time I go to the rights holder, they say, no, we're not interested. We don't want to finance this or, or or people know that story. It's not interesting. And it's not their fault. They just couldn't see what I was seeing in my head. So I just decided to uh, make the film without them um, and forge ahead. And you're right, I could use small clips, but at the end, I, I really need the whole library there. Obviously, it would make the film better. And at one point uh, early on in the process, I just sent them a trailer using YouTube clips. Hey, this is what the film's going to feel like and, and sound like. And here's who I've got involved. And they were great, man. Um, they, they opened the, 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 the complete library and basically said, um, you know, have access to everything, which no one in the history has been able to do. Um, so that kind of cleared the path. Was there anything surprising to you? Did anything surprise you in regards to this, the, as you were producing and writing and directing all of this? Did, was there anything that sort of jumped out? You go, I didn't know that. Oh, there was a lot off the top of my head. I don't. I, I was surprised at, at the lack of experience the VJs had. One would think that you would put someone on air who not only has experience but wants to actually do that job, mm-hmm. and you would learn that, for instance, Master T, who I grew up watching on Rap City, he was a tape operator and a, and a, and a, a camera assistant for years, and they kept trying to say, hey, I think you'd be good on television. Um, but he kept resisting until finally he was just thrown into the mix. Um, so I thought that was really surprising that none of these VJs really had that kind of background. And, and imagine the pressure just being thrown live to air and interviewing these stars. Yeah, I, mean, I remember him hosting, I think it was Extendemix as well, um, which was one of my uh, favorite shows um, on Much Music. Uh, now, you were saying uh, you're, the documentary is playing, it's a South by Southwest uh, conference? Yeah, so it's playing down. It will it will make its premiere next Monday uh, at this South by Southwest Film Festival. Um, it will have two two uh, screenings there, and then after that, to be honest with you, um, I want it to have its Canadian premiere at a certain festival that takes place in Toronto in September. <laughs> you can fill in the blanks, um, and then I, I want, I'm going to take it coast to coast, Jazz. I'm going to have it, um, you know, from St. John's all the way out to your part of the town in Vancouver. I'll bring out some, some of the stars of the film, have a Q&A after, and I really just want to make it a big event where people can kind of grab their friends from back in the day or, or teenage kids to show them, hey, this is what I grew up with. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Pack out a theater and have a really great event, and then afterwards it will uh, it'll be available for everyone in Canada streaming on Crave. Well, I think one of their uh, one of their hosts, Monica Deal, lives out here in Vancouver as well, so I think, uh, I think you can probably bring a few personalities for sure. I'm really curious in your mind... Could something like that be replicated in Canada today, whether it be television or just even new technology, new channels? Could something like that be something like that be replicated, where a network or um, some sort of entity becomes a town square? In this case, for culture and for music, can we replicate that today, or are we just so divided and stuck on our own channels, whether it be Spotify, YouTube, whatever it may be? We don't seem to have that um, communal experience. Like a guy from Hamilton like you or a guy like me from Williams Lake in the interior here in BC, we both have a, a commonality and experience we can share together. It seems to me today that's getting tougher and tougher. 
It is. I mean, even when you look back in the day at the speaker's corner element, which is very much mirroring modern day social media, being able to sit there and, and say what's on your mind for two minutes and, and upload it. Um, I don't know. Part of me says no, in a sense, because definitely it was also a part of the timing of all these new forms of music that were starting out. And that was part of the magic, too. But I, I think ultimately audiences don't necessarily want to just keep getting the same thing. I think inherently what makes art so beautiful is sometimes you just want the artist to paint on a canvas and show you what's cool or interesting, or the art of discovery seems to be lost a little bit um, in our modern times. So I have faith that eventually things will come in, in cycles and we'll get back to something like that. I, I don't think it will be on the traditional television medium, but certainly it will be something that um, we'll be able to connect fans of art and music and culture in another generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a documentary filmmaker, and it's very difficult sometimes to find funding and to get projects off the ground. Your last project you worked on, I believe, was the one called The Carter Effect, which looked at uh, basketball star Vince Carter's influence on basketball in Canada. Um, and this, of course, is on much music. Uh, how, wh- how do you decide what project to move forward with as, as a filmmaker and as a creative person? Ah, it's a great question. I, I, first and foremost, it starts from scratching my own itch. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want to see it. Um, and it just doesn't exist. So then I kind of set out to try and make it. And of course, I, I, I recognize that there's an audience for it. Um, and I'm not alone. I'll have conversations with my friends or you just get a vibe when you go even on YouTube and you see the amount of views and what people are consuming. So that kind of steers me in the right direction that it's not just going to be something that is watched by only a few people. And then the funding part is easily the most difficult. Um, that's what, you know, it took me six years. And then this project, to be honest with you, I just decided to put up my house. And wow. was, you know, my only asset that I, I felt like I could put forward. And I was like, you know what, worst case scenario, this film exists. And if, and, and if, that's, the, <laughs> if that's the worst part of all of this, um, I still feel like I'm winning in a sense because I created this before to help uh, remind a lot of people and bring, bring you know, just a great inspirational piece of Canadian nostalgia back to people's uh, kind of uh, memory. Yeah. Sean, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation. Good luck to you. And do let us know uh, if you, when you do come out to Vancouver to, to uh, have the opening for 299 Queen Street West. We'd love to, love to give you a bit of publicity. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, man. All the best.